we are in our second session on building a connection with your spouse. And, you know, just by a way of kind of, again, trying to provide a little bit of, uh, okay, where are we and where are we going? In the first session, trying to do a lot of that ministry of reminder, things that you probably are already familiar with and that you know, but sometimes we just need to, we need to be told again. And uh, one of my favorite quotes is from J.C. Ryle. He says, familiarity with sacred things has a dreadful tendency to cause men to despise them. That familiarity with sacred things has a dreadful tendency to cause men to despise them. And sometimes if you've been in the church a lot and you've heard, you know, marriage stuff, you're like, okay, we got it, you know, glory of God in marriage. But uh, even me, you know, I, I need to be reminding myself of these things too. So I hope that uh, something that we talked about and something that we learned from God's Word together will be of impact for you as you leave. Uh, the next three sessions all kind of build on one another. So you can think of it like this. In this session, we're going to talk about building connection with your spouse. Then we'll talk about communication with your spouse. And then the dreaded uh, final uh, C word, conflict. How do we deal with conflict in our marriage? But uh, a lot of times what I've noticed in doing marriage counseling is that if we start with conflict, we start from more of a negative point rather than a positive point. So we talk about, okay, how do we handle conflict in marriage without really addressing how do we rightly first build good connection and have good communication, which will then hopefully uh, help us when we do engage uh, in conflict in marriage. Uh, I'm surprised when I come to this topic of connection and marriage, how oftentimes in marriages, I find, especially for couples who have been older, uh, how we can very easily, as spouses, really kind of stop getting to know one another. Uh, we can kind of allow that level of pursuit and knowledge to sort of plateau. Um, you know, the, the front end on dating or friendship, dating to engagement to that first year of marriage, right, there is a high level of wanting to know, like, okay, I want to know everything about you. I want to know what makes you tick, like, what's your favorite color, what's your favorite food, what do I do that annoys you? I mean, you want to know as much as you can, right? I mean, so much of that dating process is built on building out that world of knowledge. And then it's kind of like, uh, after year one, it's like this steady, steady decline where it's like, okay, you know, we, we did what we needed to do, and here we are. Uh, and we don't realize that people change often, right? Your preferences change, your likes change, and oftentimes we forget that we need to grow through those seasons with our spouse. And so we'll kind of come to, uh, you know, an empty nest phase of life, and I'll have couples tell me something like, man, I don't even know them anymore, right? I feel like I'm living with a stranger. And one of the reasons I think why that happens is because that flow of information can quickly become static and we don't really pursue our spouse to know them and to be connected. And I think that that happens when we treat marriage essentially in the wedding day as kind of the culmination of our marriage and not a celebration of marriage. And so all of the buildup is for the wedding day celebration. And then it's like, okay, everything after that is kind of a downhill spiral. Instead of rightly seeing it, no, this is a celebration of God's covenant uh, that's being realized in us. And now we get to not go downhill, but we actually get to go uphill uh, pursuing the Lord together. So in our time together that we have now, I want to talk about how do we build connection with our spouses. And this is an exercise a lot of times I'll use in marriage counseling. So 
not only do you get to come to a marriage conference, but this is a little bit of a freebie. This is like a marriage counseling session, so you can, you know, write this off on your taxes or something. But uh, this is, it's called the attunement exercise. It's an exercise that was created by two marriage and family therapists, John and Julie Gottman. And what I've done is I've tried to take the model and really take the framework of it, but apply biblical principles and tools with it. And I think that as we go through it, I want you to see this less as a sequence, like, okay, first I do A, then I do T, then I do the next T. These are more what I would call, these are the soft relational skills that are needed to build connection with your spouse. So don't lose sight of the forest for the trees, right? If you hyper-focus in on just one of these things and you kind of lose the bigger picture, you might get lost in the weeds. So every once in a while, I'll try and zoom us back out just so that we can get a big picture. So uh, here we go. And, And also, just a side note, all along the way, I might ask you to do a little bit of work yourself. Like, hey, jot something down. Jot something down that you want to come back to at a later point just by way of accountability. So here we go. The first uh, letter in this attunement model in building connection with your spouse is awareness. Awareness. Awareness refers to just being knowledgeable of your spouse's world. It refers to being aware and knowledgeable about their thoughts, about what they're thinking, what they're feeling, their current circumstances. Uh, Awareness is not, and here's a big one, especially for husbands, awareness is not just knowing that your spouse exists. You're like, no, I got that. She's here. She's here next to me. Like, I'm aware. We're, We're going for a little bit deeper than that, right? We are going for, I'm aware of their world. I want to know what's going on. And to have a healthy, positive relationship, uh, we need to be aware of what's going on in their world. And we don't just do that because it's a good thing in and of itself to do it. We do that because this is actually the very movement that we see of Christ himself. So here's a, a few verses to think out loud together about Matthew 9, 36. Uh, Matthew records for us, when Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Uh, Matthew 14, 14, when Jesus went ashore and he saw a great crowd, he had compassion on them. Uh, Mark 6, 34, same instance, when Jesus went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them. What is the movement and connection that you see between Jesus seeing people, being aware of them, and what happens next? It's that compassion and being moved always starts first with what? with seeing people, being aware. Uh, Paul Miller, in his uh, lovely book called Love Walked Among Us, he says, loving always begins with looking. Loving always begins with looking. It just means looking at your spouse, just being aware of, hey, they're here, and that then moves me towards compassion. Uh, if you have your Bibles with you, turn over with me to Mark 8. I just want to briefly look at this with you to kind of see uh, a little bit of a fuller portrait of it together. Mark chapter 8 Verses 1 through 3, we all know Mark's a fast-paced gospel writer, right? He's not wasting a lot of pen and ink on extraneous details, and yet what we see in Mark chapter 8 are quite a few details, but I think that they actually help support uh, what we're talking about together today. Uh, Mark records for us in Mark 8, he says, In those days when again a great crowd had gathered and they had nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples to him and said to them, and here we get it at the front end, he says, I have compassion on the crowd because, well, why? Number one, they have been with me now three days and they have nothing to eat. If I send them away hungry in their homes, they will faint on the way and some of them have come from far away. 
right? What we see there in those first three verses is that Jesus sees people. He acknowledges them. He's not disconnected. He's not disengaged with the people that he's doing ministry with. He, He knows something about them. He knows four things that Mark records, that they've been with him for three days, so he's keeping track of time. He's not just losing himself in time. Number two, that they have nothing to eat, right? He's looking around. He's probably seeing, you know, people like didn't bring a packed lunch with them. Maybe he's hearing some stomachs growling. He's aware of that. He says, if he sends them away, they will faint, right? He's noticing. Maybe there are some weaker people in the crowd of like, hey, if I just tell them, hey, go home and like, you know, get lunch there, that some of them might not make it on that journey because physically they look weak, they look tired, they look worn out. And then number four, that they've come from a far distance. Well, how does he know they've come from a far distance? Well, probably because either he's heard people talking about it or maybe he's talked to them and they've relayed to them of, hey, here's where I came from. But all of those extraneous details Mark is recording for us, obviously, because they help paint a picture of when Jesus is aware and knows these different things, right, he actually does something about it, right? He knows these things, and because he knows those things, he is what? He is moved with compassion. So again, what I want to ground all of this in throughout our entire day is I don't just want you guys to be more connected spouses. That would be a great goal, but I want you to be connected because this is what we see from Christ and I want you to follow Christ. I don't, just, don't want you to be better moralists, right, and be kinder, gentler individuals. I want you to be aware of your spouse because the Savior that we serve and that we follow, this is his very model of loving people, is that he is aware of where they are coming from. So what are some ways that you and I can cultivate awareness in relationships? Well, it might just simply be asking questions and, and being present and listening, saying, hey, how are you doing today? What's something that you've been dealing with? Or tell me about how work went today. How can I pray for you? Right? It means paying attention to the individual that God has placed in your life. Simone Nouvet, the French ethicist, says that attention is the purest form of generosity that we can give. And so you might come from a background where you don't have a lot of money or a lot of finances or a lot of, a lot of means. I always say, even if you don't have those things, you actually do have something that doesn't cost any money at all, and that's your attention. Your attention is a way that you can be generous and that you can be hospitable in marriage. Uh, this is something I'd say, and we'll go through different kind of what areas are strengths and weaknesses for you, but in my marriage, this can be a weakness uh, for me. Um, one of the dynamics for Jen and I in particular is that I'm probably more of an early morning person, and she's definitely much more of a night owl. And so at night, and by night I mean around 8 or 8.30, I'm ready to like kind of turn in and like go to bed. And uh, Jen's just kind of coming alive by then. And uh, kind of my ideal night is just, you know, let the kids finish up downstairs, go back up to my bedroom, and just start reading a book. And I'll just like read a book, and then she'll take pictures of me later falling asleep, you know, with the book, which she thinks is hilarious. Um, But oftentimes, like, I'll be sitting there reading the book, and we have a couch in our bedroom, and she'll come over and sit on the couch, and she'll just start like talking to me and asking me questions, like, hey, how's your day? You know, she wants to know everything. Like, after I get home from this, I guarantee she's going to want to know about every single thing that we did. And, uh, Sometimes I just, I won't even say anything to her. I will just keep reading my book, right? Because I, I kind of just want to like passively, aggressively, like help her get the hint. Like, hey, I don't want to talk right now. I've talked to people all day long. I just want to read this book. Can you just give me that, you know? And, you know, she's, she's a good sport because she doesn't give up because she's a sanctifying spouse. She's like, well, hey, are you going to put your book down and talk to me? She literally said that to me uh, this week. 
And, and, and it's, a good, it's a good thing for me, right? Because, right, I want to give my attention in that moment to who? To me. Why? Because I think I deserve it and because it's a need. And in that moment, I have a moment, I have an opportunity rather, do I want to build connection with my spouse or do I want to build disconnection with my spouse? If you want to build disconnection, then continue to not be aware. Continue to ignore that. But if you want to build connection with your spouse, then part of that moment is me putting down my book and saying, yeah, let me, let me tell you about it, right? And, and again, if she were here, she would tell you on the opposite end, right, that part of loving me well is maybe realizing that there are going to be different times that are going to be more approachable or that are going to yield a better result. But at least for me, in that moment, right, the, the movement of Christ in me is, hey, be aware, pay attention, okay? So let me ask you a question. You can just jot this down. What, what might be something that you might be unaware of in your spouse's life right now? If you had to kind of put your mind to it to think about that question, is there something going on in your spouse's life right now that you might not be aware of? And again, that might sound ironic because if you're not aware of it, then how do you know it? But that's actually oftentimes part of the trouble is that you are aware of it, you just don't want to do anything with it, right? What's something in your life right now that you would say, you, you know what, I, I'm smart and sensible enough that I can intuit there's something bugging her, there's something irritating her, there's something that's stressing him out, there's something that he's anxious about, right? What, what do you need to become more aware of in your spouse's life? Just maybe put it down, number one, by way of accountability, and then just number two, by way of prayer, you know? So maybe one of the movements is you leave here today and you just say, hey, I, I jotted this down, like, I think this might be something that I'm not keyed into enough. Am I close? You know, am I, is this, am I accurate? You know, am I getting warmer or colder when I start moving into this topic? So that's letter A. Uh, T is turning toward. So after being aware, turning toward speaks to your willingness to then enter the other person's world. When your spouse makes what we call bids for attention, like when Jen is uh, trying to talk to me at night, what is your response to that? Will you be indifferent to those invitation or bids for a connection? Uh, will you turn towards them? And being emo- what we would say, being emotionally available then is a decision. Turning towards another person demonstrates that you care enough for the other person to actually engage with them. It says that you want to understand their experiences and what they are going through. What, what might it look like to turn towards your spouse? I just wrote down a couple of things, and you can jot them down if they're helpful. Uh, putting down the remote, putting down the remote control, that might be turning towards, right? Uh, I have a husband right now in marriage counseling, and uh, he's, he's like, I just, he's like, I always need to have the TV on. He kind of grew up with just needing to kind of drown out uh, just difficult conflict that he would hear his parents uh, uh, engaged in. And so he would always be playing video games, have the TV on in the background. Um, when he goes and travels, he travels a lot for work. He says, from the moment I get up, he says, I turn on the TV. And he's like, I'm not even watching it. It's just, it's just on, and the noise just kind of helps emotionally regulate me. And so one of the ways that impacts him in marriage is he, has, he just constantly has the TV going. He'll be watching football or sports, and uh, his wife just obviously at different times wants to connect with him, wants to, wants to talk to him. She'll make bids for connection, like, hey, how are you doing today? And trying to get his attention. And one of the simplest things that we've been trying to get him to do, what I've been trying to come alongside him is, hey, a way that you turn towards her in that moment is what? Just putting down the remote or turning the TV off and putting down the remote. 
right? That signals to her and demonstrates towards her that you are going to accept that bid for connection, right? You're not going to pass on that bid for connection. It means slowing down to listen. Uh, It means oftentimes physical touch. Physical touch is a way that you can turn towards your spouse, that when you're having a potentially difficult conversation, you come and sit down on the couch and just put your arm around your spouse or put your hand on their knee. That uh, Studies have been shown that uh, simple things like physical touch, an arm around the shoulder, a hand on the knee can be a very simple and practical way to demonstrate presence, right? So instead of turning towards, and that means like, you know, your wife's in the kitchen and you're at the basement and you're kind of hollering back and forth at one another, that the movement of turning towards is like, no, I'm going to come upstairs and hey, let's sit on the couch and let's hold hands. Let's, let's talk with one another. Uh, it might mean canceling an appointment actually, right? All of us are so busy. Your kids are probably there and everywhere. And sometimes a practical way that you turn towards might be canceling something that you want to do in order to spend time with your spouse. But that turning towards is basically, it takes that movement from being aware and it actually moves you into action. It says, I'm now going to see that something in my life and in my wife's life or in my husband's life needs attention and I'm going to meet that bid for connection and I'm going to turn towards it. The, the third letter in this acronym is tolerance of negative emotion. Then tolerance of negative emotion. This is the, the second T. And I would say that for a lot of spouses, a lot of husbands and wives, this is an area where when we're trying to build connection, we will frequently get kind of hamstrung in. Tolerance of negative emotion is simply this. It is the ability to consider the other person's viewpoints and emotions that might be different than your own. It's the ability to consider your spouse's viewpoints and emotions that might be different than your own. It might be the uh, opportunity to listen and to hear their perspective, even when in that moment you might be having a quite negative reaction. So your spouse makes an observation or a comment or a judgment or a cynical or sarcastic remark, and what do you want to do in that moment? What negative emotion are you feeling? Uh, Dismissed? disrespected, irritated, frustrated, angry. And in your normal flow of conversation, what might happen then in that moment with that negative emotion? You might shut down. You might put a wall up. You might respond in kind, right? Hey, you're going to dish it out? Well, I'm going to dish it out and meet whatever it is, right? Every couple has different kind of patterns, we would say. But tolerance of negative emotion, right, in that moment is being able to self-regulate with the Spirit's help, whatever negative emotion you're feeling in order to keep you engaged in the conversation, right? So you can kind of see this flow of being aware, turning towards your spouse, and and some of you might be saying, okay, I think I can do that. I think I can hold on through the A and through the T, and then maybe your spouse starts talking to you and like, hey man, every, every week, I mean, every day this week, you have come home from late from work, Like, you told me you were coming home at 6.30, and I had everything out on the table. Like, what gives? Like, why couldn't you call me, right? And the husband in that moment, right, you're sitting there, you're trying to listen, but that negative emotion starts to rise up of like, well, if you understood what I've just been through today, you, you would be willing to let this slide. You have no idea what I've just been through at work. That negative emotion, right, of being defensive, wanting to blame shift, wanting to, wanting to defend oneself, right, and getting frustrated that your spouse doesn't uh, understand what you're going through. The tolerance of negative emotion in that moment is being able to regulate that and acknowledge it and say, oh, I'm feeling really frustrated right now, but I am not going to allow that frustration to cut off an opportunity for connection 
with my spouse, right? I'll give you a, a simple example. Uh, Jen and I, again, we're having one of these late night conversations that happen around 8.30. And, uh, you know, she's talking and there's been a big thing that I, I've been going through in my life. And she's kind of like poking me and asking me some, some questions that to me, and understandably so, are vulnerable questions. She's wanting not just content about my day and what I did, but she's wanting to know how I'm processing things, like how I'm feeling. She'll ask me that a lot, like, how are you feeling? And uh, I'm not a very emotional person, and so I don't really like to answer that question. And she just kind of kept on, like, asking questions here and there, you know, and I'm trying to give her all of my subtle hints, you know, that I don't want to talk. And then I think at one point I just said, you know, I don't want to talk about it. And I said it in a very, like, short uh, very clipped way. And I could tell in that moment that she was really hurt. And she just, uh, and she kind of responded and kind of, she's like, well, then fine. I'm not going to ask you. And I'm, she goes, I'm not going to ask you any more questions, right? And we all know whenever a wife says that, that's the furthest thing from the truth because she's about to ask you five more questions, you know? And she says, fine, I'm not going to ask you anything else. And, uh, you know, we're just sitting there as so often happens, you know, I'm sitting in the bed and she's sitting in the couch and you know, the conviction of the Holy Spirit is, is coming to me because I know in that moment, my negative emotion is I just want to be left alone. I don't, want to be, I don't want to be irritated or frustrated. And so I'm starting to feel those things. And instead of managing those things, and we'll talk about how to manage them in a second, instead of managing those things, what do I do? I lash out. I cut off a bid for connection. So an opportunity that we would have had in that moment to build connection, right, I see that bid, I cut it off through my short, negative, emotional response. And so what do we need to do then to manage some of these negative emotions? And here's, here's what I'm going to tell you, is that you need to bring those to the Lord. You have to bring those to the Lord. And, and the premier way that we see that we bring these to the Lord is that we bring them to Him in prayer, right? If you think about the Psalms in particular, and I think that Mike was telling me that you guys had been studying the Psalms uh, uh, recently, the Psalms, in many ways, we might say from a, from a psycho-spiritual point of view, are, uh, are a way that teach us how do we regulate negative emotions. When things are going wrong or are going bad in our world, what do we do? Scripture says, you cry out to the Lord, right? Turn over to Psalm 22. Here would be a good example. In Psalm 22, uh, we hear David, and then later, of course, in the in the, the words of Christ as well, we hear someone giving voice to and crying out to the Lord, hey, here are negative things that I am feeling. And instead of stuffing them, instead of suppressing them, instead of eating them, instead of medicating them away, I'm actually going to do something with them. I'm going to bring them to the Lord. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night I find no rest. Verse 6, I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. Look at verse 14. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws, and you lay me in the dust of death. Right? Again, David just essentially is crying out and saying, hey, this is what is not good in my world. I don't feel good about what's going on in my world. I fear despair. I feel distress. I feel anxious. Again, all of these emotions we see the Lord gives us encouragement and license and liberty to come before him with those things. 
One of the practical tools, if you are not emotionally conversant, I would say, is just to Google an emotion wheel and just download an emotion wheel. I use emotion wheels quite a bit in counseling, but especially if you find yourself uh, finding it difficult to identify emotions of any kind in your world, sometimes just having an emotion wheel that just kind of gives you some of those prompts can be helpful, right? So here's how it might play out in that conversation, which Jen and I had a chance to rehearse, right? So I come back to the question and I say, hey, I'm sorry, that was not a kind response. Will you forgive me? I think that one of the reasons, Jen, why I responded so shortly is because when you're asking me some of these questions, which felt very vulnerable, the, the emotion and the experience I was feeling, at least in that particular moment, was shame. I was feeling a lot of shame and a lot of embarrassment. And in order to cover up that shame and to cover up that embarrassment, I just wanted to lash out and just cut off that bid for a connection, right? That wasn't your fault. You didn't do that. You're not responsible for that. That's me not rightly regulating what is a negative emotional experience for me. And so you can begin to see then for a lot of you, for a lot of you who are engaged in conversations like this, this might be one of the first areas as we head into this acronym where you start to take a little bit of a turn, where conversations start to go bad, right? A wife in a a certain moment might not feel heard or feel like she's being talked over or that she's being condescended to uh, by her husband. And so she either matches it, or she gets a little feisty, or she shuts down, or she kind of becomes a doormat, or she goes and talks about him to another family member or to a close friend, right? All of those are emotionally dysregulating ways to handle that internal experience rather than saying, hey, right now, I'm just feeling like you're not hearing me. I'm feeling like you're dismissing me. I'm not saying that's your intention right now. But right now in the moment, the way that you are talking to me, the way that it impacts me is I feel, I, I feel like you're treating me like a child right now, right? That's a healthier way then in that moment to be able then to help further the conversation and move forward than to do all of the different things that we just talked about previously. So let me ask you this, and again, this is another chance to jot something down. What are some of the most common negative emotions that you experience in conversations with your spouse? What are some of the most common negative emotions that you face when talking with your spouse? Just maybe write some down. Do you feel frustrated? Do you feel dismissed? Do you feel overwhelmed? Condescended to? Do you feel scared? Insignificant? Do you feel inferior? indifferent, lonely, right? Just, again, uh, what uh, what I want you to hear too, sometimes in conservative evangelical traditions, we equate negative emotions with bad emotions. These aren't bad. They're, They're negative in the sense of they're not positive, right? And so, some of you might be saying, well, I don't I shouldn't even be feeling these things. Well, we just read in the Psalms, David feels all sorts of these things, right? He feels forsaken. He feels abandoned. He feels like he's in despair. Part of this, part of this exercise is you having the wherewithal and the self-knowledge before the Lord to say, hey, here's some common ways in conversations that these negative emotions, they keep coming up. And just being able to identify that. Because, friends, let me tell you this. The good news is you could go out here today and you and your spouse could say, hey, here's one of the reasons why I think conversations are hard for us. Why we keep going off course is that a lot of times in conversations, I just feel really overwhelmed by all the things that you're wanting me to do. 
I mean, when you come at me, it's not just like, hey, there's one thing, but there's like 10 things I need to fix or change. And honey, that, oh, I leave those conversations feeling really overwhelmed. And when I get overwhelmed, I just shut down. And the wife's like, oh, like, that's helpful. Like, you shutting down to me sounds like you don't love me. When I see you shut down, I feel like you're giving up on me, right? And that little bit of insight of like, no, when I shut down, it's because I'm feeling overwhelmed, is going to have a much different effect than, oh, you're shutting down on me because you don't love me, right? Do you guys see the difference there? So being able to negatively handle negative emotions is a key part in building connection with your spouse, okay? So let's move on. So we build awareness, we turn towards, we tolerate negative emotion. The U is we build understanding, okay? So again, on this little trail that we're on, if we've made it to this spot, the end goal is holy cow, we have better understanding of our spouse. I never knew that you were overwhelmed. You seem so competent. You're a business executive. You run, the, you run your entire company and you never seem stressed out or overwhelmed. I would never have thought that about you. Well, yeah, that's I, I, because I've never told you, right? So the you in this process is understanding. And one of the key things that we have to understand about our spouse is understanding the role of expectations in relationship. And just for sake of time, we're not going to spend a lot of time on this because we're going to revisit it uh, in a couple of our other sessions. But when we think about expectations in marriage, I'll tell couples that unsaid, I think that's the fill-in that you have, unsaid expectations become unmet expectations in marriage. Unsaid expectations become unmet expectations. And then the next line is unmet expectations can quickly become premeditated resentments. Unmet expectations can quickly become premeditated resentments, meaning that if we don't have an opportunity to share with our spouse what's going on in our life, these expectations, desires, right, might be another way that Scripture talks about them. When we don't talk about them, they will go unmet right? Because nobody knows how to meet expectations if we don't actually talk about them, right? Husbands will always talk to me about trying to read their wives' minds, and I'll tell you, there's almost always a 100% failure rate because you're not going to be able to do that, right? You need to be able to talk about those expectations. And so when we keep them unsaid, they become unmet, and when we have a plethora of unmet expectations, they can quickly become premeditated resentments. So, What we need to understand is that there are a variety of external factors and internal factors that can shape and form our expectations. And I've included some different charts there for you to look at. There are some nurture things, I think, that impact our um, expectations and why we desire what we want. You know, some people grew up in a really small family that was uh, fairly self-enclosed. Other people grew up in a really large, boisterous family, and that is probably going to impact some of the ways that you guys do relationship or marriage. Uh, and then there's also some nature side uh, of just ways that you might uh, approach the world and approach people. Some of you might be more introverted in marriage. Some of you might be more extroverted. And as much as I would like to think that introverts are more godly, they're not, right? Introverts and extroverts can both be godly. Uh, it's just a, it's a way that we are built, our personality and our disposition. So on that diagram there, what oftentimes happens and what we need to have an understanding of in marriage is that oftentimes we can have an expectation, that's the letter A, we can have an expectation that grows out of our heart that then what we get from our spouse in reality is represented by that letter B, right? Uh, what we want versus what we get, oftentimes in marriage, there's a big, there's a big difference, right? And that difference and how we respond to that difference is what is keyed in there by the letter C. 
that when we don't get what we want, when our expectations don't get met how we would like for them to, we can either tend to blow up, we can tend to clam up, and then what we'll talk about now and then moving forward is we really need to speak up. We need to speak up and speak the truth in love. So let me give you, I'll give you another example uh, from my own marriage. And I'm sure that this is nothing that anybody in here has ever struggled with. Uh, but uh, Jen and I, we have certain patterns to how we fight in, in terms of our conflict. And we do fight and we do have conflict. She would tell you that if she was here. But probably our number one fight in conflict that we have inevitably is over my driving. It is over my driving and how I drive. And again, I know nobody in here probably understands this, but uh, probably a few years ago, I, was, uh, I had a speaking engagement right around this time of year. It was in November. Our anniversary is in November, and it was in Florida. And uh, I had these huge expectations. I'm like, hey, Jen, why don't we do this? We'll uh, get somebody to watch the girls, come down with me to this engagement, and then let's spend a couple of extra days afterwards in Florida. We'll celebrate our anniversary on the beach, and it'll just be a lot of fun. And she's like, that's great, et cetera. I put all these plans together, find the hotel, get the rental car, et cetera. I mean, again, my expectations are just building as we go day by day, as we get to this, I uh, get to this trip of it's just going to be the most amazing, peaceful, uh, tranquil, conflict uh, trip that we've ever had before in our life. So we fly into Orlando, uh, we're staying in Daytona Beach, and we get a rental car, and immediately we get into the rental car, and you know, I'm coming out of the airport, and I just merge into traffic, and she immediately grips like the side of her door, and I'm like, I like look over, I'm like, what, like, what are you doing? She's like, you almost ran into that car. She goes, you didn't put on your signal blinker. I'm like, well, it's like, that's more of an option to me, you know, like I think they see that I'm coming over, and she's like, oh. you know, she kind of makes a sound. She always has these sounds. And, and immediately, I'm feeling negative emotion, like, really? Like, I did, we didn't get in a wreck. And I start telling myself, like, who's actually had more accidents here? And who's actually had more speeding tickets here, right? Self-justification is starting to, 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 to creep in. So we're driving along, and I'm driving maybe a little bit faster than she would. And she's like, gosh, you really need to, like, slow down. Like, there's, there's not enough room in between you. And the amount of room that I think Jen would want me to have uh, in between a car looks vastly different than what I would do. And, you know, I'm just, like, moving lane. She's like, like, what do we need to get to this place for? <laughs> like, there's nothing we've got to do. We've got plenty of time. And, you know, constant, what I viewed as just critique of my driving. So what's the expectation? It's going to be this peaceful trip. She's going to, like, fall head over heels for, man, you're such a good husband. Thank you for planning this, et cetera, et cetera. And what am I getting, right? What am I getting in the moment, right? I'm getting all this pushback. So it reaches to a certain point, and... And I said something that, husbands, you should never say to your wife. I just said, I go, could you just stop talking? I go, could you just stop talking? And uh, my wife is, I, I mean, obviously, she, she's not here, so I can say whatever I want. But she's, she's wonderful. And, and she goes, well, fine. She goes, fine. So for the next hour and a half, you know, on the way to our anniversary celebration by the beach, you know, I'm like both hands on the steering wheel just driving, you know. And thankfully, the Lord spoke to her first, and she moved forward in forgiveness. <laughs> and we pull into the driveway, literally, and we're like, what's wrong with us? Like, we do this every time. And this happened probably at the beginning of the year. We were going to another marriage conference, and we were driving out to uh, Lancaster, Pennsylvania, and an hour into the trip, you know, we get into a fight about my driving. And we literally said, why do we do this? We always get into a fight when we drive. And uh, again, it just became another moment of sanctification. But in that moment, right, I'm understanding 
that, that role of expectations, that I have an expectation that looks like this, the reality of what I'm getting in the moment is much less than that, right? And so what do I do? I blow up and then I clam up, right? I, I make a comment, hey, could you just stop talking? And then I shut down on her, right? A, a much easier way for me to, to, to move and to build a connecting experience with her is to say, hey, I think the way that I'm driving right now is really frustrating you. Is that accurate? And she would say, well, yeah, but, you know, maybe I'm, maybe I'm just like, freaking out a little bit. And again, her family of origin, her mom's a, a passenger seat driver, so there's a little bit of that creeping into it. And she's like, I just, I just need to let you drive, right? When both of us can get to that spot, it's going to yield a much better opportunity for connection. But because I lacked understanding in that moment, not only of my own heart, but what was going on with her, what do I do? I break connection. I blow up, then I clam up, and then she does the same thing. And so what we have to learn to do then in some of those moments as we build understanding is we have to learn to speak up and to speak up in love. So that takes us then to our next part of the, uh, of the equation. So we build awareness, we turn towards our spouse, we tolerate negative emotion that we might feel. That hopefully gets us to a spot where we have better understanding of our spouse which then leads to non-defensive responding, right? So then as the conversation is in full gear, right, this non-defensive responding is the most effective way to respond when your spouse is saying something to you that you disagree. So if you have managed to get through the spot where you have managed your negative emotions and you have stayed engaged in the conversation, and then let's say he or she drops a zinger on you, you don't immediately get defensive, right? Non-defensive responding is the ability to stay put in the conversation and not immediately leap to your defense. So how can we engage in non-defensive responses? Let me just give you, I think there's some there uh, in your handout. I'll just mention them briefly. But the first of which is just simply be quiet and listen. Just be quiet and listen. James 119 is my favorite, you know, uh, be slow to speak right? Be slow to speak, be slow to anger, but be quick to listen. Uh, God gave you two ears and one mouth. So I think there's probably a little bit of a purposeful ratio there in terms of the ratio of how much we hear versus how much we speak. Proverbs eleven twelve says, whoever belittles his neighbor lacks sense, but a man of understanding or a woman of understanding remains silent, right? That a lot of times in these moments that our natural response is to defend but we need to actually be quiet and listen. And we're going to do a whole thing on listening um, in the next section. Uh, be quiet and listen. Secondly, when you do speak, keep your responses brief. Uh, I don't know about you, but I'll be with couples where, especially I think husbands can do this, where husbands will just monologue and just talk and just talk and talk. And uh, monologues uh, rarely build connection. What builds connection is a dialogue, right, where two people are talking with one another, not one person talking at another. Uh, Proverbs 17, 27 through 28, whoever restrains his words has knowledge, and he who has a cool spirit is a man or a woman of understanding. Even a fool who keeps silent is considered wise. When he closes his lips, he's deemed intelligent, which that's good news for a lot of us who are not wise and can err on the side of foolishness. Uh, the author of Proverbs is saying, hey, you can just shut your mouth and you can even have the appearance of being wise. And that's a win. So try it, right? That in some of these moments that just simply zipping our lips, uh, our executive pastor talks about uh, the tape ministry. He has a piece of scotch tape and he says, sometimes I just need to take a piece of scotch tape and put it over my mouth, right? Sometimes that might be most helpful uh, in some of these moments. And then when you do take it off to keep 
keep those responses brief and to the point. Uh, three, uh, ask questions. You know, asking things like, hey, am I hearing you accurately? Uh, do you mind if I repeat that back to you to make sure that we're on the same page? Am I missing something here? I'll ask Jen that all the time. Like, hey, I think I'm missing something here. Like, I think maybe we're talking about two completely different things. I think I'm missing something. Again, all of those questions are putting you into a position of what? Humility and in a position to learn. What you're not saying is, well, if you would talk a little bit clear about what you want, we wouldn't be having this problem. Or if you could, some, you know, instead of being attacking and instead of, uh, of lobbing off that relational grenade at your spouse, you're putting yourself into the position of Christ-like humility and saying, hey, the problem could be here with me. So am I hearing you right? Did I miss something? Can I repeat that back to you? Um, ask questions. Act like a reporter, not a judge. We'll talk about this a little bit more too, but when I talk about acting like a reporter, not a judge, what I mean is we are trying to make objective observations not subjective interpretations, right? So we're simply saying, hey, I think that what I'm hearing you say is that you're really upset about X, Y, or Z, right? Instead of making a judgment or an interpretation off of whatever behavior it is that they're doing. So simply making observations, hey, what I'm seeing is this, or hey, can I just make an observation about this? Am I, am I off on that? A focus on respect, a focus on respect. I will tell you that one of the, one of the ways that... Um, Empirical research has been done that have studied couples in the midst of conflict, and one of the number one ways that you can tell within 30 seconds if a, if a conversation is going to end up in conflict and in, in irreparable conflict is the issue of respect. If you approach your spouse disrespectfully, uh, cynically, sarcastically, uh, I almost, apart from an intervention from the Lord, that conversation is not going to go well right? That uh, spouse is not going to want to respond to that bid for connection, understandably so, because you're being disrespectful in it. So always approach the individual with respect. And again, biblically, the reason why we can do this is because you're married to an image bearer of God. Uh, you're married to someone who is worth dignity and respect, no matter whatever issue is going on. So focusing on respect. So when we talk about respect, you guys know this, but I'll just say it. It means not using profanity. That means not resorting to name-calling. That means not dredging up things that you know are going to be hurtful in that moment just to kind of, you know, whop them upside the head. It means speaking to them kindly, straightforwardly. That doesn't mean you have to be a doormat. That doesn't mean that you can't speak truth, but you do it in a way that focuses on respect. A last one, and this is a proven one, is just take a deep breath. Take a deep breath. That we know that our body, we're physically embodied beings, and that there are times where your blood, as it's rushing to the head, it needs to be oxygenated. And so here is a non-medical intervention that is free of charge, that you don't have to go to CVS to get, that will significantly aid your conflict in your conversation. It's just simply taking a step back and taking a couple of deep breaths. In taking a deep breath, you are literally doing something. You are reoxygenating all of the blood in your body. You are helping to engage the parasympathetic nervous system. So the sympathetic nervous system is that fight, flight, freeze, or fawn part of your brain, which gets highly escalated, highly escalated in conflict. And simply taking a deep breath and focusing on respect helps kick that parasympathetic nervous system, which we call the rest and digest or the tend and befriend part of our brain, and it just says, okay, de-escalate. Take a deep breath. Okay. Okay, I think, I think right now I'm feeling a little overwhelmed. Can we, can we try and have this conversation again? Or hey, maybe we just need to take five minutes and just take a moment, pray, and then come back. 
Just something as simple as that, taking a deep breath can go a long way in uh, moving you towards connection and helping you engage in a non-defensive response. So now we're at the end. Awareness, turning towards, tolerating negative emotion, build understanding, engaging in non-defensive responses, all of which brings us to empathy. And empathy is, again, the movement that we see of Christ, where he sees and then he is moved with compassion. Empathy is a full-person response that shows the individual that you get it, that you understand where he or she is coming from. Uh, The simplest way that I describe empathy is it's caring about what that person cares about. It's caring about what that other person cares about. Uh, You can be dismissive and be like, well, I don't care, or I've never been there, or I can't imagine what that feels like. And okay, maybe you've never felt anxious before. Maybe you've never felt overwhelmed before because you're extremely competent. Can you care, though, about the fact that your spouse cares about this right now? Can you care about the fact that your spouse is really overwhelmed right now? That's the heart of empathy. Again, I love what the author of Hebrews says about uh, Christ in Hebrews 4, 14 through 16. He says, since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our what? With our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. And then here's the movement. Because of that, because Christ does that for us, because he's able to sympathize with us in the midst of our weaknesses, what is the, what is the effect Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So the character that is embodied in Christ elicits a response from us, which is draw close to me because I get you. I care about you. I know what you're you're going through. Now imagine if you can transpose that dynamic into your marriage, right? Husbands, as you can respond more empathetically to your wife, the net result of that could be that she wants to draw near to you, not pull away from you. That the net result of you being compassionate and making yourself available for these bids of connection is that you actually have a spouse that wants to draw near to you, that wants to be in connection with you, that desires to be intimate with you, right? When we talk about, we won't dedicate an entire session to it, when we think about physical intimacy in marriage, one of the biggest reasons why there's not physical intimacy in marriage is because there's not emotional and spiritual intimacy in marriage. So before you touch her body or before you touch his body, have you touched their heart? Have you engaged with their feelings and their experiences in their heart? And so when we think about this final piece of this attunement model, this empathy piece is absolutely critical, right? You can go through all these movements and then kind of come to the end of it and be like, okay, like, I get that. I understand that. Man, glad I'm not in your spot. And then you could walk away, right? Now, again, I'm hoping that nobody here would do that. The movement would be after you do all those things that you say, oh, man, I, I, I hear that and I see that. I mean, I did, not, I did not get how that had been weighing on you. Can we, can we pray about that together? Can we go talk to somebody else about that and get some help? Can, can we revisit this conversation and like, let's check in? Hey, is there, is there something that I could do to help you right now in this moment? Is there something I could take off your plate, right? That, that empathy moves you to have compassion, right? So you kind of see where we come full circle. So I hope this exercise has been helpful for you. Uh, a point of conversation as you go home today might be something like this, right? And again, hey, when, when you're thinking about that acronym, honey, what, what do you think are some of our strengths and weaknesses in conversation? Like what are some strengths and weaknesses? And, and, and the good might be that you point out your spouse's strengths, 
right? And you allow your spouse to acknowledge their own weaknesses. So instead of saying, well, hey, can we talk about that attunement acronym? Because basically all of these are areas of weakness for you. And I just want to point that out, right? That conversation is not going to go good, right? <laughs> so you might start off like, hey, you know, there's a lot of things about our conversation, but one thing I can always count on, honey, is that you, you, you're aware. Like, you're there for me, and I never doubt that. And I really, really appreciate that, right? But I'm, I'm, I'm going to be honest, I know that one of the weaknesses I need to own is I get defensive a lot. Like, I just do like this. I, I think it's family of origin. It's what I saw my mom do with my dad. I just have a strong sense of right and wrong, and I know I get defensive, and I know I've got to work on that. Um, you know, will you help me? Right? That, I think, could be a wonderful conversation point um, after a weekend like this to just kind of go back, review some of these things, and just look at the areas that are weaknesses. Ask the Lord to help you turn those into strengths. And the areas that are strengths for you, build on those, celebrate those, uh, but ultimately give God thanks uh, for those. Okay? So we're going to take a break. I went a little bit over, so let's try to come back at around 11.15-ish, and uh, I'll call us back, and we're going to talk about handling communication. That'll be the last uh, session we do before lunchtime. So 11.15, uh, we'll come back together. Thank you.